Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome to our discussion today with Dr. Jill Sperandio, author of Pioneering Education for Girls Across the Globe, Advocates and Entrepreneurs, 1742 to 1910, a book published in 2019 with Lexington Books. Uh, my name is Christy Kelly, and I'm a colleague and friend from Drexel University in the U.S., um, I'm really excited to introduce Jill. Um, she is Emerita Professor of Educational Leadership at Lehigh University in the US. Her research interests include gender issues in educational leadership, girls' education in global contexts. Um, and she's originally from the UK. Jill has had a long and illustrious career in school administration before pursuing her doctorate at the University of Chicago and then joining Lehigh University College of Education. Welcome, Jill. Thank you. Well, let's get started. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the intellectual journey that brought you to this book? Well, it's uh, a long journey because it initially started when I um, left University of Britain. I trained as a teacher um, and decided I wanted to travel. And my first job was actually in Uganda, teaching in Ugandan secondary schools shortly after Uganda gained independence. And so I went out to Uganda and was teaching in what were boarding schools. The British had set up a system of boarding schools to, uh, to mix up the ethnic groups. So children were coming from all across the country uh, to get their secondary education. And after a little while, it dawned on me that the girls I was teaching in these schools were actually the first cohort of girls in Uganda who'd actually got, who'd actually got through to the secondary school level at all. So. Um, that certainly piqued my interest and I dug a little deeper into Ugandan history and learned a lot more about the Ugandan education system. Um, I also was able to teach in both a co-educational school there and a, a girls boarding school and um, it was an eye-opener for me too about what uh, gender inequality <laughs> was really all about. Um, and the way the girls were treated differently, certainly in the co-educational school and the, uh, and the girls' school. Um, and um, I guess how the outcomes for girls were very different um, in general from the education system. So it was a kind of sensitizing to gender issues at the school level, certainly. And particularly this cohort of girls who had against all odds managed to get through to secondary school um, and the struggles that they had to go to to stay there. Um, I guess um, when I returned from Uganda, it was fairly a, a fairly traumatic time, the time of Idi Amin. So we actually left in a hurry. And um, at that point, the whole country gradually dissolved into chaos and there were nearly 20 or 30 years of, uh, of turmoil in that in that time, I had gone on to a career in international school education. I lived and taught in a number of countries abroad. And I guess I'd been sensitized to this 
look, you know, looking for little schools and learning about the local education systems. And uh, a number of the little case studies in the book, um, Pioneering Education for Girls Across the Globe, um, popped out at me, as did the, you know, the, the various themes that came out, particularly the idea of entrepreneurship and advocates. As it happened, I actually managed to go back to Uganda. I went back to Uganda to complete my doctoral research in the 1990s. So I'd first been out there in the, uh, in the early 70s. Um, and I actually used my doctoral research to look at what had happened to the schools and also what had happened to the girls um, and how their education, if, if it, they were still there, <laughs> had actually impacted their lives later. So it's been a kind of a, a long journey um, in terms of gathering these bits of information, but kind of ongoing curiosity about this that, was, that started off on that first trip to Uganda. So can you speak a little bit about what that return was like after that many um, years? I mean, we have a lot of scholars who do purposeful longitudinal ethnographic research. This sounds a little bit accidental and yet really, really important work. It was, it was very interesting to go back. I mean, there were, nobody really was writing about Uganda. I had no idea what I'd find. And you imagined that the schools would have collapsed. Um, but actually parents stepped in and took over from the Ministry of Education, managed to keep the schools going. Uh, girls were still going through schools. They actually managed to locate some of those women now from those early cohorts. And uh, they had fascinating life stories to have survived through what they did. Um, in, some, in many cases, they both survived and thrived. Uh, one of the interesting things about Uganda was that the initial schools had been set up to educate girls to be wives and mothers for educated men. The idea was to provide you know, well-educated women who would marry the, you know, the top educated men. But as it turned out, the top educated men were not interested <laughs> in marrying educated women. <laughs> so very few of these women had actually married, but they'd managed to go into starting off in lower level civil service jobs. They'd moved into higher levels of the jobs. Um, AIDS took its toll of a lot of the men. Um, these women were still there single, but they were financially doing well. They were very capable, clearly, and they were often heading large family groups. Um, you know, they were the providers for big extended family groups with a lot of respect and a lot of support from those groups. So some very unexpected outcomes there. But um, I also looked too at the differences in girls and boys outcomes in schools, which actually had then by then become a major issue in both the United States and, and the USA. We were getting the first studies of different outcomes for girls. And, uh, and it was very easy to see that same situation being played out in the schools in Uganda um, at that point. So my first, you know, the first impressions had carried through all the, over nearly 30 years to uh, nothing had very much changed in terms of girls' struggles to get through a, a secondary school education. It is interesting to think that the women themselves, that, you know, how they perhaps on an individual level shifted and changed what was possible. I noticed that one of the things that sort of stands out to me in your choice of schools is that you purposely looked for schools that were locally um, organized and founded, not through the missionary schools or kind of colonial endeavors. Can you speak a little bit about how you did that and <laughs> what you think that 
tells us about sort of your overall findings? I guess in part the reason those scores jumped out was because of the personalities involved. Um, you know, they ranged, I mean, they were all kind of, well, they were clearly all people with an interest in education, but their interest in education varied quite widely. And they were, they were initially schools that were set up often before the population they were serving had access to girls' education. And often it turned out in times when there was no particular interest in educating girls. So, you know, not only were they, they setting up schools, but they were having to also um, persuade their prospective clients and families that they, the girls needed to go to school. Um, and it, it, I guess it, uh, you know, there were, a lot of it was rumor. I found out about schools, you know, just fairly serendipity ways. <laughs> I didn't go necessarily looking for them. Um, the school in, I remember my interest in the school in Azerbaijan was started by a local historian who, who told me about the school a school, the first school for Muslim girls, <laughs> founded by this, this man who was a rags to riches um, story who made his fortune in the local oil fields. But what really intrigued me was um, he, what he did was show me a picture of this man sitting with, you know, obviously a class from this, this girls' school and various other notables in the background of the picture. And then he showed me the identical picture taken after the uh, the the, the Soviet, basically the Soviet move into Azerbaijan. And there was exactly the same picture, but this man was totally absent. <laughs> He'd been basically painted out. He was a person on ground at that point. And um, I, I just thought that was fascinating. And then I went looking for the school and it, the school was actually still there. It'd been turned into a library. And um, and then, you know, gradually you, you dig deeper and just really some amazing stuff comes out. So. I guess in all of those examples, I've ended up in a place or somebody's just casually mentioned, oh, that building was where um, the Pules, you know, had their first school for Dalit children. And, you know, you think, I don't even know anything about that school. <laughs> but um, when you look into it, it's, they're just fascinating stories in themselves. It was, you know, a lot of curiosity and a lot of interest because I, I have that kind of insider perspective, you know. I know what it's, it takes to set up a school anywhere. Uh, many of the international schools I worked in, we were actually founding new schools. And as a school administrator or a school teacher, you, you understand a lot of the inside pieces of, of schooling and running schools and the, uh, you know, the things you have to do to get community on board and involved and, um, and the people that drive the school, make it a success. So I guess I, I saw my own experiences translated, or I could at least imagine what these people were going through to, to do what they did under very strange situations in some cases. How would you describe sort of the success of these schools? Is there some magical combination of factors, issues, events, um, contributions that stand out across all six cases? Um, there were really a number of themes that came out, I think. Um, not so much, uh, you know, there, there's no real argument involved in the book. I was really looking at potential commonalities and also the differences. Um, and I think, I think there were the commonalities um, 
were often the, if you like, the two sets of people involved. There was typically the man who basically set up the school, or in the case of the Arabians, it's an organization, a male-dominated organization that had set up the school. And then the group of women that, I mean, it always had to be women that, for the most part, that were involved either the directly in the teaching and, in most cases, in the... Um, in the actual head, heading of the school. And, you know, the, on the one hand, there was a social entrepreneurship. These were men that were often genuinely interested in bettering society in one way or another, even if it was only their own particular society. Um, they wanted, they were looking for ways of, of helping that society. Um, but, you know, girls' education may have been just one part of the bigger picture. Um, whereas the women were often advocates and um, the professional piece and, you know, really interested in a quality education for girls. They've been given this wonderful opportunity to actually, you know, further their own interest in, in getting girls educated. It wasn't so much, I mean, none of this was really to do with the feminist movement, although a number of those women actually did get involved in feminist movements, but the actual running of the school was very much about, you know, providing a high quality education for the girls, much higher than anybody had actually envisaged. You know, I mean, for the men, it was just, you know, get these girls, I mean, it was almost back to the, you know, educated wives and, and that kind of piece. But for the, for the women, there was a real, chance to you know to push girls education to a higher level to get it up to the level that boys were experiencing and um so i think you know there were different motivations for both those groups and so that was and that was pretty typical through all all of the four schools um what was different of course was the actual um, motivation for setting the schools up um one of the themes was uh, very much the idea of, um, apart from the, the you know the soul, the, the piece about social entrepreneurship, the uh, the men actually wanting to better a society, um, and that they were they were interesting men because I, you've got to imagine that the context here was an expanding empire, cultures were coming into contact with one another. There was this whole piece about the West and education coming out of the West, um, and often these men were able to take. Uh, an opportunity provided by a kind of a, a situation in flux, a situation in change, and they grabbed it and they, you know, they, they, they managed to produce what they did in those situations because it was, it was something that was new. Um, you know, people weren't sure about which way they were going. They were able to market it um, as, a, as a feature of modernization. I mean, I think that's another theme you know, uneducated women become, became the status of being modern. And many of these societies were either, were trying in one way or another to prove that they were modern, either to stop themselves being absorbed into a culture that was colonizing them, or to actually align with the culture, you know, so that they, they were accepted rather than, than pushed out or seen as backward, you know. So the idea of, of modernizing the modern woman you know, educating women was part of being modern was very much a theme that ran through all of this. Um, I think there were other themes. Um, this need to sell the school to um, to the clientele or the group that the school was existing in was, was a very interesting one to me because I think we continue to see that um, when we look at girls' education today, um, I was looking 
um, at a quote by Melina Gates, uh, Melinda Gates, about, you know, the it ran something along the lines of, you know, the major problem we have in the world today is, is poverty, and we have to eradicate poverty. And um, to eradicate poverty, we basically have to put women and girls in the center. It's, you know, it's, and, and there was a whole piece for a long time about, you know, educated girl, you educated village, you know, it was like, girls education has to be justified by something else um, in the wider wider perspective and, and this you know I think this has been true since it started so this is kind of an, an interesting theme that seems to be carrying on even today it's not enough just that girls have got equal rights to boys and should be educated you know there has to be some special reason uh, or some proof that we have just discovered that makes it you know really imperative that we, we look at girls education so that was another thing yeah. I guess yeah. Um, and as I said before, the whole idea of women as advocates, they weren't, they didn't have the resources to set these schools up. Men controlled money, they controlled women. Um, you know, so these schools kind of gave them this, <clears throat> this opportunity that even on their own, they would have had great difficulty doing it. I mean, there's certainly instances of rich women endowing schools and things like that. We had women who ultimately got together, like the uh, girls high school trust in Britain, you know, who set up schools for girls, but they were typically quite well off women. Um, and they were using, you know, they were using resources that were available to them through, through their male counterparts. Um, I think with these particular schools, a lot of the women were not from particularly wealthy families. They had somehow or other acquired an education um, and obviously their own talents were, were came into play in all of this, their own, their own beliefs and understandings. So I think they're, they were, that, that interested me too, this whole idea of advocacy and, you know, the, the high level of education that they might actually manage to bring into these schools. It's interesting um, when you talk about sort of the each case, and we can dig in a little bit more into them. Um, it, was there in each case, is there sort of this particular moment in time historically or in terms of the global local connection, the particular people, of course, but is there something that made the school possible in each case, in each case? So like if we look at the Chinese school, what made that possible at that moment in time? I think a lot of that was, well, the motivation was because of groups realizing that they were on the edge of something. Uh, I mean, you know, a, a sense of needing to maintain a, a culture, a cultural understanding. I mean, that was true for Azerbaijan too. The, uh, you know, the Muslim group as opposed to Christians being absorbed into the Russian, the expanding Russian empire at that time. And um, there were plenty of girls schools in Azerbaijan, but they were all Russian Christian schools, you know, modeled on the, on the, the model that was coming in from the West through Russia. So the idea of actually setting up a school for Muslim girls who traditionally were not educated at all and certainly wouldn't have gone to a Russian Christian school, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was, an, it was all tied up with this attempt to preserve the Azerbaijan culture that was about to disappear um, with the takeover of what time was a Russian culture, but ultimately, of course, it, it disappeared into the, the greater Soviet Union. Um, but I think, I think that helped. I think the fact that often 
in the, those colonizing areas that were being colonized, particularly in, in Britain, Britain did, had very little interest in direct control of things like that. It was pushed out to local authorities who weren't particularly interested in what was going on. And that basically left a lot of leeway for setting up schools and getting approval. That said, I think people had to still, uh, they, they came up against a lot of hurdles. And um, I mean, the Pule school in India um, was anathema to the local Brahmins and um, they would have happily seen it disappear. But, you know, the, the British authorities like the whole idea, it fitted in nicely with this modernizing India piece. You know, there was local ladies, English ladies who were prepared to put some money into it. And, um, you know, it was a sort of feel good piece. So, um, but of course, you know, that, so again, it was this kind of, you know, conflicting cultures and the British weren't interested in setting up girls schools, but they were quite happy to help Indians that were prepared to do that, particularly when they were doing it for a caste system that, that England didn't have any sympathy with either. So, you know, there was there was this kind of mix of motives in all of these cases, similarly in Singapore, there was no real interest in providing education for girls in Singapore, as far as the British were concerned. Um, and so they were, they, you know, they, they weren't really, it, it was a window of opportunity of change before things got codified and before, national education systems were set up that, that people were able to do this. Um, I mean, we're still seeing that same kind of thing, I think. I mean, we look at Oprah Winfrey's school for, uh, you know, lead girls to gain leadership in South Africa. I mean, it's that same sense of entrepreneurship, seeing a, you know, seeing a little opening. Nobody was going to stop her setting up a large school and, you know, a well-funded school for girls in South Africa. And, um, you and she clearly had the drive and the, the sense that this would be an important piece um, if she could do that. Um, and it was not something that the local education authority would be providing. So, um, yeah, yeah. No, mixed motives, but kind of underlying themes that kind of ran through this over time and right through into the present, I think. Yeah, and I think what's really fascinating has how each story, while different, different contexts, different school, different sort of players involved, different rationales, different frames for that they were dealing with, but they expanded schooling for a group of youth who otherwise weren't getting school uh, education at that time. So whoever had already been left out um, now had this opportunity. Can you speak a little bit to um, the sort of missionary element of the Singapore school uh, compared with the Pennsylvania Moravian? school in Bethlehem? Were they similar, different? I think the interesting thing about missionary involvement, and it was there a little bit in India, um, in the sense that the Pules actually got help from, I think, American missionaries out there. I mean, they didn't help them set up the school, but certainly they helped educate them. And, you know, obviously were, were, were players in helping them set the, set the schools up, you know, outside of the missionary circle itself. Um, I guess in Singapore, there was nobody in the local community, no women in the local community that could be drawn into teaching these schools. So they were out there looking for to hire teachers. Um, and many of the teachers that were gonna be out there in Singapore would have been trained as missionaries originally to go into China and who were at that time not allowed to go into China. Um, I think, and in Uganda, of course, the schools were all, had initially all been, um, mission-based, either Catholic or Protestant schools. Um, 
I think for me, the interesting thing was that where there is evidence from letters and things from women missionaries that they themselves found themselves caught in a very interesting situation or, or challenging situation to their, you know, at a, a sort of psychological level, you know, there they were, they were really second-class citizens within their own organization, their church organization, you know, um, and yet they were role models in the sense of, of seeming to be these modern educated women who traveled from, you know, from Europe out to these countries. But I think many of them, uh, and many of them actually disagreed with some of the policies that they were having to, you know, inflict on their, their female students who were part and parcel of the beliefs of, you know, that were, they were being instructed to, to promote um, by, the, by the church. So, I mean, that wasn't without its, <laughs> without its own little tensions. And, um, you know, there were, these were obviously independent women and, and, and had an understanding of what local women were going through in the, con in the, the context they were, they were finding themselves. And their, their desire to help was at times at odds with church teaching, um, which, which, uh, which created an interesting sort of sideline itself, I think. <laughs> you, did, you did mention the Moravian school and that was quite interesting because actually that's in some ways that was different again I mean the Moravians have a very interesting history about education they had right from the very beginning this religious foundation that came from you know the central European area of, 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 of Germany that um, you know right from the very beginning they were heavily into educating everybody and girls and boys all got good educations and I mean, the underlying motives, I guess, for girls ultimately was that they would be the wives of missionaries and go out there. But you know, that that wasn't being that wasn't a heavily a heavily pushed piece. I mean, it, it just genuinely seemed to be an understanding that girls and boys would both be educated. And um, at one point, women had quite a large part to play in the actual organisation of the church. But that gradually went over time, and by the time they were here in Bethlehem. And it was the daughter of the founder, uh, or the, certainly the promoter of the of the group, the Moravians, uh, Zindendorf, his Count Zindendorf, who actually visited here in Pennsylvania with his daughter. And it was his daughter that, that pushed for having a girls' school. There was already a boys' school. Um, but they, by that time, they were one of the few places where it was actually headed, the school was headed right from the beginning by a man. The church insisted on having a male headmaster. And, the sisters, the girls taught, um, and um, and that's the way it stayed. I think in the whole history of the the school here, they've only ever had one head, one woman headmistress, you know, um, and yet there's been this highly successful girls' school that was open to girls outside of the Moravian Church. It certainly wasn't limited. It had a reputation for an extremely well, good curriculum that was wide ranging, academic, you know, it was rigorous. Um, then male headmasters all seemed to have contributed in one way or another to the well-being of the school and the girls. And, you know, and yet it's the one, the one example that of all of them where, you know, it was never really headed by a woman. The women didn't really have any say in the organization of the school because it was the elders in the church, all men, who, uh, who actually determined, you know, what, what went on in the school, particularly, you know, the financial part of it and the development of it. So, so that, that was an interesting one, but I think the history of, of the Moravians and girls education, in fact, you know, the, the college here now 
uses this as a promotion piece, you know, first girls education in the United States piece. Um, so, it, and it's, it's the school was highly successful. George Washington had children and I think it was. So. Yeah. I mean, it really does speak to, I think, how revolutionary each of these cases were in their moment of time at the founding but how each one is also sort of bargaining with different patriarchal contexts in which they could operate, how they operated, um, who was allowed to participate, what curriculum looked like, um, where teachers were coming from. So there is kind of this, it's not a perfect world, but they did push the boundaries in each case. Mm -hmm. I think probably another thing that's very interesting is, I mean, it's very hard to find information on ex-pupils but where you do I mean I gave you the example of Uganda where these girls you know being educated virtually saved them you know in terms of uh, surviving a period of, and thriving in a period of, of chaos and uh, political uncertainty they just weren't a threat you know then they weren't they weren't affected by AIDS as much as many of the women were because they didn't have husbands um, and they ended up you know as highly respectable members of the community supporting you know, a, a very wide extended family. Um, but I mean, the case, the case of the school in Azerbaijan, even though the school disappeared with the, the Soviet takeover of the country, many of those girls actually went on to be teachers in the public school system. And before that, several of them had set up girls schools in other parts of the country. Um, here in the Moravian school, girls went out and set up their own schools. They weren't necessarily such high quality schools as the Moravians, but they, you know, they, they certainly had acquired a, a sense of entrepreneurship that allowed them to go out and, and think about setting up their own businesses. So, you know, I, I, it's much harder to establish the, you know, the effects of a school, but um, the little that we have would seem to indicate that this, this for the girls involved, experiences that they gathered from these schools as you'd expect I mean they had all these unbelievable women role models around them plus you know they were being treated as something very special and clearly um, it clearly paid off uh, as you'd expect for most of them. One of the things you talk about in a couple of the cases is the challenge of convincing families, right, to send their daughters to school. Can you speak a little bit about what you learned about that? What were some of the strategies that the schools used to drive students into these schools or to attract them? Yes, I, you know, and that's actually quite hard because obviously these people were risk takers. Um, because often, as I said, the schools weren't particularly um, welcomed by other members of the community. So by putting your girl in one of these schools, you may well run the risk of having, you know, having consequences in terms of your, your, um, your own well-being or the well-being of the, the students. Um, I mean, there were cases, I think, of, of uh, were certainly, um, you know, children being or parents being pressured to take their children out of school by these groups. Um, it, is, it is an interesting question. I guess there was a kind of a group, maybe a group coherence. I think probably parents who genuinely, you know, believed in the power of education really wanted the best for their children. I think there was a lot of faith usually in the people that were actually setting the schools up and in the women that ran them. Um, I'm sure they, you know, both those groups did a lot of, of you know, 
publicity and uh, to get that. I know they did. I mean, you, you see, uh, you know, the, the recorded in the paper, the, um, you know, speeches given at speech day and the, um, you know, local newspaper articles and all of this, you know, and I, I guess all of that kind of thing would help build up trust in a school. I mean, I think it's like any, probably any private school now, you have to build that that understanding among, or make yourself attractive to, to certain groups. But I, you know, I think you're absolutely right that there were, yeah, these, these parents were having to make a decision that may have put them outside their own, own communities um, in terms of, of doing something very new and very different and very odd sometimes with religious understandings about, you know, who, who got educated and who didn't. Uh, I think that's a really interesting point because we sort of take for granted that, of course, we should have girls' education. Of course, why wouldn't anybody want to go to school? But even today, within many school contexts around the world, the opportunities for girls when they graduate is not always the beautiful scenario of individual empowerment that we imagine, right? <laughs> and so the, the risk that a family takes and thinking about the future for their child, right, and their own risk. It's also interesting to see how, I think it was the Uganda and the Moravian College, but maybe there's a couple other ones that the women who graduate were not as likely to get married, right? They did have different options. And so maybe that was also a little bit unsettling um, mm. to society around them. Yes, it's very much tied up with that. I mean, one of the, the, the ways that they sold these schools was the curriculum. I mean, they, here they were saying, you know, that this is, we want your, this is, you want, we want you to take this revolutionary step and put your daughters, but we promise that they're only going to be taught, you know, domestic subjects and things that are going to make them better wives. That, that didn't turn out to be necessarily the truth because the women at the schools had, you know, a whole different idea about what they were going to do with these girls. But, you know, nevertheless, part of the promotional piece was this whole thing about, you know, the, the whole understanding that, Girls' education should be about making them you know, good mothers and heads of households, and that they would educate their children and all of this kind of thing. So, so that's very much a theme, and I think it was very much used probably to make these schools acceptable. Um, that that there was not going to be anything. Nobody was saying he's going to go off and run their own businesses when they leave here, <laughs> and you know the understanding uh, as it proved to be wrong but you know that they may actually better their chances of being married off to you know the higher ranking people than they would otherwise be able to do they would be more you know they'd be more in tune with modern society and you know make attractive wives and partners or men who are busy becoming europeanized and uh, moving into a whole different social world so i think that was certainly very true in um in the Singapore school, from what I read, you know, the uh, women's positions have been kind of degraded to the point where these women were just sitting around, uh, often taking drugs all day, <laughs> you know, wait, being waited on hand and foot, you know, they, they lost any kind of um, connection with the real world. And, uh, you know, the, the, the upgrading of women within this particular group was seen as, as very much part and parcel of the of, of what the school was going to offer um, and that could well have appealed to men who wanted to uh, you know see their daughters uh, move into better circles perhaps yeah yeah 
Um, for the non-historians among us, is there anything specific about the time frame you chose in particular for the establishment of these schools, 1742 to 1910? 1742 is the Moravia School over here, which was uh, in Bethlehem, which was the, uh, the earliest of the group I looked at. Um, this, I guess this was a period, I mean, this was pretty much the period before the First World War, when obviously there were major changes and changes towards more uh, the development of education systems, national, national education systems with, you know, with coherent curriculum and school building and this kind of thing. So this really was a kind of a, a bit of a free for all in terms of what schooling was available and who was providing for it. Um, you know, there was there was often I mean, the first step was often a system of, of elementary schooling, but this these schools kind of transcended that um, and moved beyond that. Um, I mean, George White's school in Norwich, I think, is is a very classic example of that, and he was using or grabbing onto bits of legislation that were starting to come out about the possibility of, of you know schools beyond you know the very basic education and. And he levered that um, very neatly to allow him to set up this girls' school. Um, and I mean, it's very hard to know ultimately, you know, what his final motivation was. But again, he was, you know, he was a much loved philanthropist in his, there were, you know, thousands of people came out to his funeral when he died. Um, so, you know, these, these people were highly respected in their own communities and, uh, you know, were seen as honest and caring. Um, there was there's a lot of faith in what they wanted to do and um and so you know he was clearly a very savvy politician but at the same time you know there's a real sense that he was genuinely driven to to provide something he felt was really necessary and you know he found ways to do it uh, so i think i think that this this changing this time of change is really what this period represents when these opportunities are available for people to to pursue something like this that, maybe it's much harder to do once you have a, you know, a more regulated national system in and one that, you know, once national systems came in and basically there was provision for, for all children. Um, whereas up to that point, boys had pretty much been favored for any kind of educational uh, endeavor that was, was out there. Yeah, and I think that Norwich chapter really does kind of bring together nicely this, the kind of three sorts of folks involved, right? You have the social entrepreneurs, the one who sort of seizes the moment, has the money, kind of has the idea, can wield the, the stakeholders together, right? Then you have the advocates who will pursue it, implement it, you know, figure out how to do it, right? And then you have these activists. So they all come together. It's not really a social movement. You can almost imagine it becoming a bit of a social movement though, or being seen through that lens. I, I, what I loved about that, I mean, George White was fascinating in himself, um, and there were several other big families that were involved of a similar ilk. They were, you know, they were the new industrialists, if you like, that come, came from very modest backgrounds, and they were, you know, really driven by, you know, an interest in improving social conditions in, in industrial Britain. Uh, but when I actually looked at the headmistress, Margaret Hill, who basically was headmistress of that school for 30 years, I mean, there was very little written about her until I eventually hit on her you know, her obituaries, you know, and they it just painted this wonderful picture. I mean, she was obviously clearly a very Victorian headmistress, you know, she had clear views about what she was going to do, and it was going to be good. 
that she was at that. I mean, when she retired, she, she was asked what she was going to do. She always wanted to travel. And so she goes off and travels the world. And then she was heavily involved in the kind of the feminist. There was a, a women's organization, a coalition of women, I think it was called. And, you know, she just becomes a major player in that too, you know. Just and of course never married. I mean, they didn't. They the school was her was her baby. I'm sure. Um, but you know, there's so little about that woman, and yet she'd been the driving force of this school and probably a lot of other endeavors in the city for something like thirty years. Whereas you know, George White, there was quite a lot written about him. You know? So uh, there was a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on. I think that women were very very involved in um, and then women from quite modest backgrounds as I said I think her her father had been a tradesman and um, she had sister she had got trained in, in one of the early teachers training colleges I lived with a sister who was similarly trained you know obviously they had a father that was oh you know forward thinking enough that to let his girls go into into training colleges and get an education and uh, no very I, very interesting. No, I really loved Margaret. <laughs> yeah, I would have liked to have met her, I think. <laughs> Although I can imagine many people like her today that are still active in the world that are just sort of taking these opportunities, seeing opportunities, right? Taking the risk, pulling the people together, throwing their energy and personalities behind it and, and really bringing communities together in ways that don't center themselves, right? But are about this larger social good. And I think that story often does get overlooked, um, as do the stories of the teachers, right, that you bring into this as well, the stories of the students, the stories of the parents. It's not just a story of a school. These are all the players involved that make up a school. Um, yeah. Well, is there anything that sort of surprised you as a researcher in the field? You've been doing this quite a while, worked at the international schools. What stood out to you as sort of one of those aha moments uh, when you were reading through the data or sifting through archival materials, talking with people on the ground, exploring the rocks. The real challenge was actually getting at some of this material. I mean, it, there is very little out there, to be honest. I mean, you end up kind of piecing it together. Um, a lot of it's in, as I said, newspapers. Um, schools are really bad even today about keeping any kind of historical record of their development. <laughs> All the schools I've been in, if you want, you know, they come to a, a 50 and 50th anniversary now, somebody to write a book and there's absolutely nothing about, you know, the early founding of the school or anything. It's, I guess, everybody's so involved in the actual enterprise at the time that they don't actually write anything down. Um, there were certainly real challenges as a Bajan um, when I was first there trying to get into records. I mean, it was shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, and there was a very rigid system still in existence for getting access to anything. Um, plus the difficulties of the fact that as it, stuff written in Azeri had changed the alphabets twice, <laughs> and old Azeri didn't bear any resemblance to new Azeri. So, you know, finding somebody that could both read Azeri in, in several different alphabet forms, plus Russian, I mean, there was not, obviously none of this was in English, um, was, was quite a challenge. Um, when I went back the second time, which I did um, with a Fulbright to actually um, actually finish off that chapter, um, it, was, it was easier to get into the records. Um, and there was some interesting stuff, uh, photographs and things that I hadn't seen. And then I got taken out to actually 
the place where um, where Talia had spent his last days um, into the house, and it turned out, you know, there was a relative, a distant relative of his living in the house. So there's just suddenly this this whole expansion of your picture of this man, you know, and then people would tell you stories which nobody told me when I first out there. He was obviously, you know, he'd been eliminated by the Soviets from the record. You, he was not somebody that anybody should know anything about. They let him exist there because he was so beloved in the city, they didn't dare do anything to him. But, you know, he was rele relegated out to this, you know, living very quietly by the sea um, until he died, which he did, you know, in Azerbaijan. Um, but suddenly he was, be he'd been, resuscitated if you like and you know and the local university was running special days about him and uh, you know his picture was everywhere and um, and suddenly there were people would talk to you about things that their relatives had talked to them about stories about him things like that so that was very lovely I think um, I guess similarly with the police in in India when you actually go up to um, there's now a university named after them and you know stamps are out they have a day when they recognize her um her poetry is published in books you know it's 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 nice seeing that over time that some of this stuff re-emerges and gets re-evaluated re and and people start to appreciate just who these people were and what they did at the time and what they symbolized you know the willingness to go out on a limb to do something um, that involved the betterment of girls <laughs> and the betterment of education in general, I guess. Yeah. That's fascinating. So what is left unknown? Uh, what would you see as the future research for new scholars coming into this arena? Or what would you yourself like to go back and explore or venture off into new areas to explore? I think, um, I think, the unearthing of, of these little local histories, and it's much easier, obviously, now people, you know, people are putting records together and things like this. You, you do find a lot more information about, if you're a local historian, you know, the, the publishing of this stuff, I think is very interesting. I mean, little local schools all around the world. I just happened to stumble on these six and I thought they made a very interesting study themselves, but I'm sure, you know, if you went back and did it again, there would be all sorts of new information and probably new insights. But um, I, I guess for me, it's part of this, this bigger picture of understanding how things or seemingly go in, in cycles for girls' education, um, frighteningly so sometimes. I mean, think about both Iran and now Afghanistan, where women's education took major leaps um, because it was being promoted by certain people. I mean, in the Shah in, in, in Iran and uh, I guess, you know, the occupying forces, if you like, in Afghanistan. Um, and yet, you know, all of it can just disappear. And it's women then that, that suffer the consequences. It's the women who have their rights to an education and their, their chances of, of jobs and things like that that seem to suffer in these cases. So I think, I think the need to focus in whatever way on girls' education, much as it would be nice to think that we could start looking at this as a gender neutral area. It's it's not yet in, in many parts of the world. It is still very much a gendered, a gendered piece. Girls' education is still really there. And um, I think I think historical studies or as along with all the, the material that we have 
in the modern in the modern sense show us how people caring about it can make a difference um, you know modern day philanthropy or governments or whatever you know I think I think that emphasis on girls education still has to be there for a while um, just to ensure that it does ultimately not become not become an issue. No, it would be nice to just take it off the, the board. I see this still all the time in my studies in, in educational leadership. I look specifically at um, you know, why women are so poorly represented in educational leadership when they always make up the bulk of the teaching force. And most recently I came back from Ethiopia where we did a study of women in primary schools, you know, the few women that actually were in leadership in primary schools and interviewed them. And it was, you know, the usual, the usual for anybody that studies it list of, you know, causal factors that, that led to their, their low representation. But I looked at the figures again for this year and they've actually gone down in the three years that, that since I did the study. So, you know, it's, it's, an ongoing problem, I think, whatever you, ever level you look at. Um, and we do need to, I think, keep a focus on it. Well, <laughs> on that happy note, <laughs> um, I really, really want to thank you for the research that you've done and keeping your kind of finger on the pulse in these six countries, in these six cases. Um, as we come to sort of a conclusion this afternoon, I'm just curious if there's anything else you'd like to share, you'd like to talk about or tell our listeners today. No, but I do have one little puzzle. <laughs> and that's a picture on the front of the book, which is, um, I chose because it actually came from Azerbaijan. It's a, a photograph that was taken by, I think, a French photographer, wandering photographer of a Kazakh family um, way back when. But the picture of the little girl with a book, now what, <laughs> that just always intrigued me. What book would that little girl have been having? And why was she holding a book for the photograph? I mean, was, was this another demonstration of, you know, the modernity of this family or the, the reference of this family? Uh, so, you know, in the back of my mind, there's, there's still that little unanswered question. I'd love to know more about that family and why that girl had a book. <laughs> Well, so our listeners today, if you have any <laughs> thoughts on that little Let puzzle, me know. <laughs> reach out to Jill directly. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to read this book as well as to discuss it with you today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Christy. You've been an inspiration to me too with your, your interest in comparative education and, and women within that, that piece too. So. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I can't wait to assign this book to my classes, as should all of our listeners today. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.